Then in your Bibles this evening, congregation, we would direct your attention initially to two passages. Uh, The words of our text will eventually be found in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and in your Bibles you can find that on page 1074, but we also want to read from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and in your pew Bible you can find that on page 1112. Uh, We're reading Matthew 2 because it quotes a prophecy that is in the words of our text in Micah 5. The context is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and certain wise men from the east, they come seeking the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and as they inquire about his whereabouts, uh, the prophecy of Micah 5 verse 2 is referenced uh, by the chief priests and the scribes. And so we begin reading tonight from Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, continuing through verse 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now thus far our reading from that passage, then we turn to the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, and again in your pew Bibles you find this on page 1074. Uh, We read verses 1 through 6. Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops, he has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up, until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock, in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God." And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod as its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders." Now, thus far for this evening, our reading from the Word of God. 
a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are various things that are essential to life. Boys and girls, you might think about your physical life or the life of your body, uh, and so you soon learn that food is essential to life, drink is essential to life, but also when we speak spiritually, there are things that are essential to life. Uh, one of those things that is absolutely essential to life is hope. Uh, it's often said uh, that, for example, in concentration camps and in prison camps and war intermittent camps, uh, that once a man, or also a woman, uh, but once a person loses hope in such a situation of imprisonment, they just give up the will to live. And so you read some of the horrific experiences of prisoners of war and how some endure year after year of being imprisoned and of brutal torturing, and yet they live through it because they have hope of one day being released, of one day experiencing freedom. Other men, for various psychological reasons, abandon all hope upon entry into such a prison camp, and a few days or perhaps weeks later, their very life is extinguished. Hope is essential to the Christian life. And so I want to ask you this evening, in what do you hope? If, if you had to take a few moments and, and make a list of things that you hope for, what would be on that list? And you could also phrase the question differently, in whom do you hope? Ultimately, uh, the Scriptures are clear that our hope must be centered upon the gospel that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and our hope must ultimately be based upon that redemptive power of our God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the people of the inhabitants of the land of Judah uh, in the days of the prophecy of Micah, they have need for hope. They find themselves in dire circumstances Although life from the external appears to be okay during their time, uh, threats are knocking on their door. Uh, the Assyrians are coming with all their might and with all their brutality, uh, and the prophecy has been heard, from out of the land of promise you will be cast, to Assyria you will go. And yet the prophet comes not only with messages of doom, but also with these messages of hope, and uh, they're intermingled together. And so the gospel preaching does the same thing, or at least it ought to do the same thing. Uh, there is the dire prediction and proclamation in the gospel ministry that God is a God of justice, and God is a God of wrath, and He will punish unbelieving sinners. But there's also this wonderful proclamation, there is reason for Israel to hope, even as we heard this morning in our text that assured us pardon. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. And why? For in Him there is mercy and abundant redemption. And so to encourage our exercise of hope this evening, we look at the words of our text underneath this theme, the Lord promises a king for Zion. And that king, of course, is to be the object of our hope. As we unfold that theme, we'll notice, first of all, the description of this king, and then secondly, the work of this king, and then thirdly, the blessing of this king. So the Lord promises a king for Zion, the description, the work, and the blessing of this king. Uh, the description of the king, and we state from the outset that we believe that this prophecy 
although it may have an initial fulfillment in the days of Micah, the historic days of Micah, they find their ultimate fulfillment in none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we read also from Matthew 2, uh, and proper hermeneutics, the proper way of understanding the Bible is to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Passages that are more clearly understood are used to shed light into obscure passages. And so we interpret Micah 5 properly when we use Matthew 2. And even though it's the chief priest and the scribes in their unbelief and in their indifference to the reality of the incarnation who tell the wise men, oh yes, there is a prophecy in Bethlehem, there will be the king. Even though they do not understand the significance of the prophecy, the very use and the very recording of it in Matthew 2 shows that this is the proper interpretation of this king who is referred to in Micah 5, the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the king in his position as mediator. And we've learned and been reminded over the past weeks that when we talk about Jesus Christ as mediator, we speak about one person with two natures, with a divine nature and with a human nature uh, that are united together, not mixed nor confused, but united together in the incarnation. Uh, and there is a reference in this passage to both the humility of the king, but also the exaltation of the king. Uh, and this tells us something about the king. He will come from humble origin, Bethlehem, an insignificant little village within the Judean context. Uh, one of those villages that you would have passed by without hardly a thought. Now, we mean absolutely no disrespect, uh, but you might think of some of these little towns uh, dotted across the Iowan landscape. They used to perhaps have more of a glory day, and so there stands an abandoned grain elevator, and there stands perhaps a bank and one blinking light, just recording the passage of time. Maybe there's an abandoned railroad line that used to run right through the heart of the little village, but now hardly seems to be any life within the village. That's something of what Bethlehem would have been like. The littlest, the apparently most insignificant, a place that few would have ever looked in these dire days with the Assyrians knocking on the door and threatening invasion, few would have looked to Bethlehem. And there's a, a point of application in that. The pride of the human heart often refuses to look in the humblest of places for deliverance. And you can think there is a parallel between the text as it's given in Micah and also in Matthew 2, because there is Herod, and there are the chief priests, and there are the scribes, all of the powerful, influential leaders of the day, all of the persons that humanity would think would deliver us from our misery. And there they are in Jerusalem, with all of the pomp and circumstance associated with their nobility, and yet that is not where help for humanity is going to come from but rather a rather insignificant village, Bethlehem. Although Bethlehem was apparently insignificant, it is in the biblical theology of the Old Testament extremely significant. Uh, we refer to two passages that record the establishment of God's covenant with David. And really to understand redemption, we need to understand covenant theology, that God made a promise 
Yes, he made that promise to Abraham, and then he reiterated the same promise to David. And we read, for example, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, the Lord speaking to David, and your house and your kingdom should be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, And the boys and girls, they learn from a rather young age that David came from Bethlehem. It's the city of David. A reference is also made to this reality in Psalm 89, verse 35 through 37. The Lord again speaks, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. So God freely, sovereignly established this covenantal promise with David, and ultimately with the seed of David, Uh, that out of Bethlehem would come a ruler, a king, that out of the humblest of towns, the apparently most insignificant villages, would come the true seed of David. The one who, although of a humble origin, also is of an eternal origin. And so if you go back to the words of our text, uh, we are directed to look at an insignificant village, but yet one would come forth from there, in verse 2, whose goings forth are from of old from everlasting. And so there's perhaps you might say a veiled, a thinly veiled reference to the eternal deity of the one who would come forth from the city of David. When we read that his origins, his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, uh, we can't help but think of the opening of the gospel account of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This eternal origin emphasizes the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and also then the establishment of what theologians call a covenant of redemption. Before time, before the creation of anything, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, covenanted within themselves that they would glorify themselves by the provision of salvation. And so the Father... The Father gave to the Son a certain number of people for a kingdom, the elect. And the Son agreed to satisfy all of the requirements, to do all of the work, the states of humiliation and exaltation. And the Holy Spirit concurred with the covenant of redemption. And the Holy Spirit agreed to apply those blessings of redemption to the hearts of those who were elect, who would be members of the kingdom. Uh, now, again, if we reference the Psalms, we, we see evidence of this reality. Uh, we just pick Psalm 110, although you could also go to Psalm 2. Uh, we dealt with that somewhat uh, Thursday evening in our Ascension Day service. So, Psalm 110, uh, verse 1 and 2, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies." Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. This all refers to the covenant of redemption from eternity that was realized in time as the covenant of grace. And what this does is it points out the description of this king. There is a wonderful wedding of humility and of exaltation. An insignificant village is the place in which the eternal covenantal plan of God is materialized through the incarnation, through the coming of the King, the eternal Son of God. 
and yet the son of David. And as we transition into our second point, just simply behold the wisdom of God. How his wisdom makes foolish the things of the world. And how in his wisdom he delights, he delights to use that which is seemingly insignificant in the accomplishment of his purposes and his plans. In our second point, the work of this king that will come forth with origins from eternity and yet in time coming onto the scene of human history through an insignificant village, the work of this king would be that of deliverance. Uh, now, this is worded historically in verse 6 with reference to enemies of the Assyrians. Uh, we're not going to give a cultural commentary on the Assyrians. Just note this, they were a brutal, brutal people. If you and I would have been living in this day and if we would have heard that the Assyrians were coming, this was not just some type of pleasant visit. This would have struck fear within our hearts. The Assyrians, known for their brutality uh, and of their oppression of their enemies. Uh, and so the work of the king in verse 6 is that he would grant deliverance. Notice that word's right in the middle of verse 6. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian uh, when he comes into our land. I assure you that any citizen living in the land of Judea who would have heard this, their ears immediately would have perked up. Someone will deliver us from the Assyrians? That's what we want more than anything else. That's what we need more than anything else. You know, there are those times in life when everything else is put into its proper perspective. And you are able to recognize your greatest need. And the greatest need is deliverance. Deliverance from the enemies, not of the Assyrians. Of course, they have long passed off the scene of human history. Uh, but our deliverance from our spiritual enemies being sin, the devil, and this world. Who will deliver us? Now, that is the question, but thanks be to God, the answer is clear. The answer is the king. The king will deliver us. And how will the king deliver us? You see, in the days of the Old Testament, and this is not a, a slight on uh, English royalty, but today, you know, the, the Queen of England, sure, a very prominent person, but what does she really do? I mean, she's not going to go out in, in her esteemed age and fight any battles. But in the Old Testament, the, the king, one of his major tasks was to go out and to lead the armies and to defend his people. And that is indeed what is described here. The king will go out, and by his powerful work, he will defeat our enemies. And this is depicted in, in very graphic language. The Assyrians will come. Uh, they will lay waste with the sword the land of Assyria. And verse 5 describes this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. And by this show of might, this number of perfection plus one, uh, there is this evidence uh, that this will be a successful campaign by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so you can think of what Jesus Christ says to his own disciples, uh, that he would bind the strong man uh, that he would deliver his people from the oppressive power uh, of Satan and of sin and of the world. Uh, we find this uh, ultimately 
realized, of course, in the atoning sacrificial work that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes on the cross as he battles, you might say, the powers of darkness. Uh, But we, we go back to this emphasis that our number one need is spiritual deliverance. And our hope is in God and in the Lord, especially the anointed person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I know we can say many things that we are in need of. So, for example, if we would have stopped ourselves on the sidewalk coming into church and and said, is there anything you need? Um, Perhaps you could think, well, tomorrow morning the grocery list is there and the household chore list is there. Uh, And all that is connected with our earthly vocation is there. But at a deeper level, what is your greatest need? Deliverance. Here is a reason for hope. There is one who has accomplished that deliverance. And that person is Jesus Christ. And he has accomplished this by his power. Uh, Verse 4 He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. And we emphasize this, we attempted to emphasize this Thursday evening when we talked about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's proper when it comes to the incarnation and the sufferings of Jesus Christ to emphasize his humiliation. And so we speak about a babe in a manger. And we speak about Jesus Christ with a crown of thorns. We speak about Jesus Christ fastened to the cross. We maybe even speak of Jesus Christ with his body being laid in a tomb. But we cannot stop there. We must also emphasize what is emphasized by this prophecy. That he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. I'll be honest with you, I have my own fears about the future, but the only thing that alleviates those fears is when I am drawn back to reflect upon the divine majesty of God and the power of Jesus Christ. I've said it before from this pulpit, and it's not original with me, what the church, what the Christian church, especially in the Western world, needs to rediscover is that God is God. And that sounds like a simple truism, but there's a world of theology packed in that, that God is God. That he is who he says he is. And that he has all of his glorious attributes. And many times it it seems like the church and the individual Christian lives life kind of rocked back on our heels. And maybe that's not the most appropriate analogy uh, drawn from uh, the boxing ring. Uh, But you know, when we use that figure of speech, uh, he's he's back on his heels. Uh, There's kind of this defensive posture, this almost on the, the border of defeat. Uh, like, we take this posture and we think, boy, if, if Satan and if the powers of darkness give us one more uppercut, we're down to the mat and out for the count. But we're not. Well, in and of ourselves, of course, we are. But there's these promises. He shall do this. Not he will try. Not that Jesus Christ is in heaven wringing his hands with 
frustration and perplexity as he looks upon the events and the circumstances that confront us within our lives. He shall feed. He shall do these things in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Makes us, of course, think of the psalm, Christ shall have dominion. He shall have dominion. And his dominion is and will be a universal dominion so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of the Father. And this indeed is a divine strength and is a sovereign strength, uh, but is a strength that then gives us a a sense of confidence, a, a proper sense of confidence. And upon the risk of being repetitive, this confidence is not to be placed in ourselves, but in the King of kings and in the Lord of lords. Because it's only in Him uh, that we find this redemption uh, and we obtain the blessings that we can begin to describe in our third point. Uh, The the blessings uh, are clearly delineated, uh, but especially you notice uh, there is in verse 5, and this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces. Uh, My mind is drawn to that word peace. This one shall be peace. Now, I've never lived uh, in a war-torn or war-occupied land. I don't have firsthand evidence. Uh, I've read some of the historical accounts, especially uh, of the German occupation of the Netherlands, uh, and especially of the winter uh, known perhaps as the, the famine winter, the harsh, brutal winter in which everything was apparently in short supply. Boys and girls, I've read that during those times, people ate pig udders. I don't even know how you do that. I don't even know what that is. It just sounds awful. But that was all they had. And if they had that, they were thankful. I only bring this illustration up. Imagine, imagine the sense of joy and of relief when they heard that there was peace. Liberation. So much more when we who are held in bondage by nature to our sin hear this prophecy, and this one shall be peace. Isaiah echoes in many ways Micah's prophecy, and many of us well know the prophecy of Isaiah. He shall be called Prince of Peace. That's his very identity. The Lord Jesus Christ, his very identity is that of the Prince of Peace because he comes and he brings peace to the captives. And so the Apostle Paul also, for example, in Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace. And peace has this sense that there is an absence of conflict, but more than just an absence of conflict, that there is a reconciliation that there is a fellowship, a covenant of fellowship. And so the Apostle Paul also can write in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the blessing of this King of Kings, as he comes from this apparently insignificant village 
but a village that is tied up with the covenant promises that God made to His covenant people. As the Lord Jesus Christ, He who in His divine nature is eternal in time, springs forth out of the root, uh, out of the stump of Jesse. He comes forth to deliver His people from their enemies, ultimately, of the spiritual Assyrians, of sin and of death and of captivity. And He declares that there is peace. There is peace through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is my great privilege as a gospel minister this evening to proclaim that there is the provision of peace, and then also to call upon you, to exhort you, and to exhort myself then to embrace the Prince of Peace and the active, continual exercise of faith, uh, because there is uh, then this application uh, of these blessings. Uh, there is only one way of peace, but there is a way of peace, and both of those truths uh, I need to stress clearly tonight. There is only one way to find peace, and I say this because many, many a soul ever since the very dawn of human history uh, has wrestled and labored in the pursuit of peace, but they have looked, if we can borrow and modify uh, old lyrics from a song, they have looked for peace in all the wrong places. If you look and if you observe culture, just simply the men and women on the streets of our cities and our villages, and you can see all the lonely people, and you can ask, where do they all come from? Uh, they're all searching. They're all longing. And, and what does the human heart want more than anything? Peace. Internal peace, a sense of peace, external peace. And that's, of course, what we want also for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Yes, peace in the streets, freedom from injury, freedom from attack, freedom from invasion. Uh, that's why we're willing to risk our very lives for the well-being, for the peaceful condition of our families. But even greater than that, the spiritual peace for time and for eternity. And it's ultimately remarkable when you encounter someone who has that sense of peace, even in the midst of life circumstances. And so you might talk with someone who has received a sobering diagnosis from a medical expert, and they tell you the details, but then they say, but I have peace. And you think to yourself, that's absolutely amazing. In the midst of these uncertainties, peace and it's wonderful when they say, I have peace because I know that my times are in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has defeated the greatest enemy. Sadly, many will never find that peace because they look for it in all the wrong places. There's only one way to find peace, the Prince of Peace. But there is a way, and it's a sure way. It's a time-tested way. You can think of the hall of faith in Hebrews and of that list as it goes on and on and on through the patriarchs of the Old Testament. These all, and to summarize it in our own words, you might say these all found peace through the covenant work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could then scan uh, the annals of post-biblical history of the church and think of how many individuals throughout the centuries have found peace in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight also there is this call to trust 
in the power of Jesus Christ. Even against seemingly insurmountable obstacles that the church faces and that the Christian life faces, uh, there is this call back to reliance upon the power of God. Especially when we are confronted with the difficult realities of life in the midst of this world. Sometimes, uh, the older I get, I, I think that providence throws us difficult circumstances to draw us back to this reality that our hope is in the power of Christ, not in the power of ourselves. And so trust in the power of God, and then there is the ability to have hope, to have hope for time and for the future, for the eternal future. And as we said in the introduction, it's hope that is essential to life. And, it, and it's my prayer that we as a congregation might display the beautiful reality that we are a people who have hope. So that as we go about our ordinary, everyday calling, that people, people might actually observe us and in conversation ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. And when they perhaps ask us for the reason for the hope that we have, it's also my prayer for desire that we would immediately begin to speak about the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace and of His humility and also of His majesty as the only answer for humanity's plight and condition so that we might give all praise, honor, and glory to Him alone, both now and forevermore. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for speaking to us through Your Word, uh, through prophecy given uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of old, but recorded for our own encouragement. Uh, Lord, we confess that many times we are filled with doubts and fears and perplexities as we see the spiritual Assyrians encircling our hearts and our lives. Uh, but we ask that especially in such times and also as we as a church uh, look upon a post-Christian culture that is growing in its antagonism against all that we hold dear. I pray, Father, that we might have a strong and a vibrant hope, a hope that is evident to those around us within this congregation, within our families, but a hope that is also evident to those around us in this community and as we interact in our day-to-day -day lives, so that when they see and ask for the reason for the hope that we have, that we might then be quick and willing and able to speak about the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, in whose blessed name we pray. Amen.